Welcome to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. I'm Trevor Maxwell. I'm a stage four colon cancer survivor, and I've got a message for other men. You don't have to go through this alone. What does it mean to man up to cancer? It means reaching out instead of isolating. It means having the courage to accept help along the way. To me, manning up isn't just about being tough. It's about knowing that we're stronger and smarter as a pack than we are as lone wolves. Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are. Welcome to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. We have a special show indeed today because somebody listening to this show today or a connection to someone listening is going to have a chance to save a life and it might just be you. My guest is Tim McDonald from Tampa, Florida. Tim is a stage four colon cancer thriver and his best chance right now at curing his disease is through a living donor liver transplant. What does it mean? Pretty simple. It means he needs a hero. Someone willing to give up part of their liver, which regenerates, and we'll get into that. Someone willing to give up part of their liver to replace his. Tim, welcome to the show, buddy. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Trevor. It's uh, great to uh, be on with you and uh, and talk. I know we've communicated plenty of times in the Man Up the Cancer group. Yeah, so. definitely. <laughs> yeah, and so and I'll get into that later too. So Tim is a is a definitely a force of nature in Man Up to Cancer's Howling Place group. Um, before we go any further, we need to before we even begin the interview, let's start by giving people the link so to see if you are a potential match. Or, or to share with your networks, all you need to do is go to timsliver.com. Simple. Timsliver, T-I-M-S-L-I-V-E-R.com. That's it. Go to timsliver.com. You'll find out all the information you need to know about being a potential match, sharing that link with people. That's the go-to place for you. And now we can get into the interview. And let me give Tim a proper introduction. So he really is a force of nature who always helps anyone he can. Tim is a generous, kind, compassionate, and brave soul who cares deeply about humanity and builds community everywhere he goes. So community is the common thread in his whole life. He's the community account manager at Homeroom, and he's a former director of community at Huffington Post. He's the founder of My Community Manager and director of communications for Social Media Club Chicago. Tim's also an ambassador for Fight Colorectal Cancer. So shout out here to Angie Davis and the relentless crew at Fight CRC. Woo. So com- community and building community. Um, before we get into the liver stuff, talk about that a little bit as the force in your life and, and, and you know, before and after can- and before and during cancer. Yeah, well, it's um, I don't know. It's just been, you know, something that I think I've done my entire life. But until about, you know, maybe 13 years ago, I didn't even hear, hear the word community manager, except if you're like an apartment manager, you know uh, manager, your community manager in that aspect, but right. now it's a pretty common phrase, um, that a lot of pe- more people know about, but basically it's been about, you know, how we bring people together around a shared purpose, um, to create shared value. And, um, that's happened, you know, I first realized it when I was working on the board of directors for social media club in Chicago, um, ended up taking a job helping launch HuffPost Live at HuffPost and then got promoted to the director of community at HuffPost and then was doing some freelance work and speaking and workshops. And um, and then, you know, uh, cancer came around and I just started using all those skills to help me kind of 
uh, find community to help support me to learn, to share and to support. And then, um, you know, it's got me to where I'm at now looking at the liver transplant. So um, I'm doing it yeah. again, looking for that special person to be the donor. <laughs> yeah. So it's really interesting. There's all, it's like, uh, there's all these communities intersecting here. Um, so tell us about your quest. So right now the quest is to find a liver donor. So, so there's like a million apps to find potential romantic partners. I imagine it's a bit tougher when you're looking for, you know, an organ or a piece of an organ. Tell us about um, what you've learned about this world. How do you go about this? Well, the one thing that I've known all along, even before I was eligible to start looking for a donor was that it's up to the recipient to find their donor when you're looking for a living donor okay. uh, and for metastasized cancer, I'm talking specifically, not just yeah, in general, yeah. but I, cause I don't know that world. I know metastasized cancer for liver transplants uh, is what I'm talking about. So just for the rest of our conversation, for anybody that's listening, they understand that. Perfect. But the one thing that I've learned is that it's all on your shoulders um, okay. and you have to go out and find one. Now, over the course of the three months that I've been searching, um, which is a whole nother story of how I thought this was going to happen within a month for me. But um, and here I am three months later and still don't have one. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Yep. But it's, it's about, you know, I found a couple different resources that are for living donors. So it's more in general, like for, you know, kidneys, livers, not just for metastasized cancer, but for anybody that needs a kidney or a new liver. Um, and it's different from, people that are on a list to get a, a liver because those people have severe liver disease that they're near end of life and they have a ranking system that they use. And the scores basically for somebody like me would be around a six or a seven. You need to be at least a 30 to get on that list. And so oh, that's, wow. that's why you don't get a, a liver from a list um, of, a, of a deceased person or as they call them cadaver livers. Um, so you, it, it's all on you and your shoulders, even though there are some, a couple different resources. One, I know that you need to pay to be part of another one that's free to be part of. Oh, I'm sure there may be a couple other ones out there, but these are the two that I've mainly found that are out there. So I've been on the free one for a couple of weeks now. I just found it. I'm continually searching and looking and finding, but it's, it's really leading me to understand that um, once I go through all this, I am going to build a community for anybody that's got metastasized cancer looking for a liver donor. Um, and I'm gonna work, cause I think there's 14 centers in the US that do these um, transplants. And I'm gonna connect with all of them, make sure that all their patients know about us and then put a wide net out there for anybody that's interested in being a living donor and help connect people that are going through this. So they don't have to go through what me and the dozens of other people that have been through this before had to do on their own. We'll do it together. <laughs> and that's Amazing. what community is. <laughs> so that is brilliant and beautiful. I love it. I, I, I'm so excited for that. Um, but let's step back. I, I do need to provide a little bit of context for those who are listening. Um, you know, a lot of people in, in different cancer types, or maybe you don't even, you know, you, you don't know about this stuff we're talking about the liver specifically here because the, for people with colorectal cancer, that is cancer that starts in the colon or the rectum, the liver is the 
number one site for when it metastasizes, the liver is generally where it starts out, where it goes to through the blood or through the lymph nodes. Um, the liver is, is highly vascular. It's a place where cancer loves to set up shop. So, so for those, you know, and so for those of us in the CRC community, we talk a lot about the liver because it's very common to have metastasis there. So let's get that out of the way first. And then secondly, transplant for um, CRC patients where it's metastasized to the liver is a relatively new um, option. It's it's but it's getting a lot of traction. So it's it, there's not a big history there, um, but it's making a lot of progress. So you're starting to see more and more patients uh, have success with a transplant. Um, you know, I think about I recently interviewed. Jackie Emery, a two-part series I did with Jackie, whose husband, Rich, had a life-saving uh, liver transplant for metastatic stage four colorectal cancer. I think of Carol Motika, a good friend of mine who is a, a long-term survivor now of her liver transplant through the Cleveland Clinic. Um, you know, those are two, just two people that come to mind. And Carol was really one of the um, the trailblazers in this. Um, so <clears throat> so just, that's just kind of laying the ground a little bit for you're starting to to see more and more um, that liver transplant is becoming an option in stage four CRC, specifically in, and you can maybe tell me a little bit more about this, but um, in cases where the disease really has kind of set up shop in the liver, but it's not, um, you know, been extensively spread in other parts of the body, right? Tim, tell, talk us, talk yeah, to us that, a little bit about that. Yeah, that's what I've learned about being a candidate for a liver transplant when you have colon cancer that's metastasized to your liver is that, you know, really you need to make sure that one, you've been on chemo and seeing good results for a year. Um, two is that you need to make sure before they consider you an actual candidate to be a, uh, a recipient is that you need to make sure that there's no cancer outside of the liver. So for me, since I had colon cancer, that involved removing part of my colon, my sigmoid colon, which is where my tumor originated. Um, yep. The good news was that the chemo worked so well that when they did a colonoscopy to tattoo it, there was only a scar tissue. When they removed it into the biopsy, there was no signs of cancer in my colon. Oh, goosebumps. That's amazing. Um, so, um, so that meant that my liver and, and I'm making this really silly, sound simple. I've had yeah, biopsies yeah. <laughs> on a lymph node in my collarbone. Um, when they did my colon resection, um, Dr. Hernandez, who's the transplant surgeon up at URM was talking with my surgeon down here at Moffitt and wanted him to actually visually look, even though they did a PET scan and nothing showed up outside of my liver, wanted to look around my abdomen and my other organs just to make sure there was nothing suspicious in there. So they're very particular about doing everything they can to make sure that the cancer is solely in your liver. Well, and this is really important because I, and I think the gist of this, I wish we had like Carol and Jackie on as well, but I think the gist is, you know, they're not going to, what's the, why do we want to do a huge, you know, a huge surgery? It's a big surgery when you might have disease in your bones or in your lungs that, that is, you know, going to progress. Like, so is that kind of what your understanding is? That's exactly what it is, is, um, and it's not just for you, it's for the donor too. They're going through a surgery. And right. so, um, in the words of Dr. Hernandez, when he first started talking to me, it's not ethical for them to put somebody at risk when they know that there's a high probability of the cancer spreading after they do the transplant. So they only want to do it in a case where they think that you have a 
fairly high chance of not having the cancer recur. Um, awesome. so, so that, um, and, and just one thing that I learned in my last call with them is after the transplant, you have a 25% chance of being cured and you have a 75% chance that eventually the cancer will reoccur most likely in your lungs. <sighs> um, and, but they'll monitor you, they'll, you know, try and address it and remove it as quickly as possible. But the one good thing is I would be considered MED after the transplant for sure. <laughs> right. Which is no evidence of disease for those yeah. not in cancer world. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I always like to make sure that I, I spell things out because not everybody is aware of all the terminology. Like I wasn't when I was first yeah. diagnosed. Lots of acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that, that means that, you know, I would, you know, just have a great chance. And the one that the run, you know, one question I get is why transplant? Why not some of these other options is because I don't think according to my research and the talks that I've had with oncologists and surgeons, that there is any other option for me other than chemo for life or clinical trials, which is just another fancy way of saying chemo for life, just not FDA approved yet. <laughs> yeah, it to absolutely. So, so people out there might be hearing like, Oh, Josh, 25% chance. Like that's pretty low, but, but in our world, that's actually, that's a darn good dice roll um, versus the, the options that you just talked about, which are, yeah, like, you know, this, 18, the, the, 18 months ago, I was told that I was incurable by every single oncologist and surgeon that I talked to. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> so now having a 25% chance of being curable is defying all the odds. <laughs> we will take it. Absolutely. Um, so speaking of community, so those people that I talked about, like Jackie and Carol, um, Don, Chloe, I believe, like others, mm -hmm. th there are people who have been, been through this. Have you been able to connect with some of them and learn oh, from absolutely. their journeys? Absolutely. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. It's been wonderful. Um, you know, colon town, which is another group that, um, cancer group that's specific to people that have colon or colorectal cancer. Um, they have a whole bunch of sub communities and I got invited into livers lane, which is people that had colon cancer that metastasized to your liver, or like we talked about. So, um, the person in there, Betsy post who, who moderates and runs that group was so instrumental in educating me on the different options. But then when I kind of narrowed it down to transplant or potentially surgery at the time, I wasn't sure if that was still an option. Um, I, I went to her and asked her and she goes, let me connect you with Dr. Hernandez. And she asked for all my information. I got the genetic makeup, I got this. But now after I made that connection and started on the transplant path, they have a transplant group. And so that's where I started meeting all these people. And um, Mark is another one who got a transplant, Don, um, Rich, uh, you know, Carol. So I know all these, and I know there's a few other ones that I'm forgessing. I think Jesse is one. Um, there's there's oh, probably yeah, about a half. Yeah, Jess Delaney Sloper yeah, uh, yeah. right here in Maine. Shout out. Yeah, yeah. So there's like six people that I know that I'm friends with that have gone through this, that I've chatted with, I've talked with. Um, they've shared some ideas on how to find one. Some of them were instrumental on like, you know, um, you know, do, are you, do you, should you get a second opinion with a transplant, you know, talk to a different transplant surgeon, um, you know, talking about the recovery, staying up in Rochester because you need to do that, you know, so it's all these things that I'm not there yet with a lot of this stuff, but they've been so helpful and instrumental in really, you know, kind of sharing what worked for them, what challenges they faced and, really what they would suggest if they had to do this process all over again. 
What a beautiful thing. And again, as a former uh, social media skeptic and one that only uses it for like cancer stuff now, this is the power of social media in today's age where you can find these people who have been through this. You know, this is not a, um, a commonplace thing, right? But you can find these people and shout out to Colon Town, Betsy, Lindsay, Jason, everybody, Julie, everybody over there. Like Colon Town is, is one of my original communities. Those are our people. And so it's, it, it really is so powerful and amazing to have the, not only have the information like at the, at your fingertips, but the, the emotional support, the human to human support of these, of these real people and getting to know them and, and becoming friends with them and like these mentors and people to go through it with. Wow. That is just awesome. Well, you know, I mean, just, I mean, just a simple, you know, example of this is, you know, if you want to talk to your oncologist, you need to call, message them, whatever, wait for them to respond. You get one answer, but then that brings up more questions and it's <laughs> totally. back and forth. And it might take a week to get where you're at, where, you know, on Facebook, I could just message Betsy and she's like within an hour, usually replies to me and gives me an answer. And so you don't have this feeling of being alone. You feel like you're having somebody there holding your hand and walking you through this process. And I don't think there's too many people that say that their oncologist is a person that holds your hands and walks you through the process. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Thank you for that. That's perfect. Um, so talk, uh, talk to us a little bit more about the process. So let's, and again, folks out there, timsliver.com, like, come on, share post. We have got to find this perfect match for Tim. This person is out there. And when it happens, this person's going to be bonded with Tim for life, which is another beautiful relationship. I think about, you know, Boyd Dunleavy, one of, a guy in our group who had a, a stem cell transplant many years ago and has visited with his donor a couple times down at Disney. And it's just been a, such a, a magical experience for him, pardon the pun. Um, but so the process, though, we believe you're going to find that person. So let's say you find that person. It's a perfect match. Um, Dr. Hernandez and his team are, are happy. Um, what, what's the process then? Like what, what is it? What's the time frame? What does it look like? Yeah. Well, what happens first is somebody needs to call and all that, the number and everything's on the, on the timsliver.com, but they call the hospital, they give them their, all, they ask them the basic questions. How tall are you? How much do you weigh? What kind of blood type, your health conditions, all that good stuff. Then if that works, they get you either up to Rochester for a two day screening or you can do it locally and have the, the results sent. And this is Rochester, New York for those Rochester, who are. Rochester, New York, yes. Yep. <laughs> and then at the same time, if they get to a point with that person, they're gonna have me do the same thing. I need to go through a two-day screening. And those are just your basic scans, blood work, psychobales, um, you know, I mean, everything else that you need to kind of get done. I don't know everything yet, but because um, I haven't been there. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but if that, if everything looks good from there, the final step is they send the scans over to a company in Germany that do, does 3D mapping on your two livers. And they kind of overlap them to make sure all the veins and everything and arteries kind of line up. That's and wild. So yeah. that's like the final step. So once they get that back, that process from the time you kind of get somebody that's eligible, um, depending on how long it takes them to get their two days screening done. And then, um, get it over to there. The shortest time for that is about three weeks. 
yeah. most, most likely about four weeks, you know? So it's four weeks from the time somebody calls to the time somebody might be a, an actual donor for me. Um, okay. And at that time that they say, we have a donor for you, I need to be off chemo for a month. And obviously it's dependent upon the, the, the donor's schedule of when they can do it as well. So, you know, if they have a vacation planned, if they got a big work project or something that they don't want to miss, um, we'd have to wait for them to be done with that, me to be done with my four weeks of chemo. And gotcha. then we would schedule the surgery and that would take place in Rochester, New York. Um, the one thing that I know is all the screenings before the, the transplant are taken care of by URM, by the, by the hospital. Um, the actual transplant surgery takes care of me and the donor. My insurance takes care of all that. So the only thing that, that's up to the donor to be responsible for is their travel back and forth to Rochester and any work that they're missing. Perfect. Uh, thanks for spelling that out. I mean, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it's a commitment, but it's definitely doable. And we've seen it happen time and time again, where it's doable and it works out beautifully. Um, so, and, and all this information is on timsliver.com, but could you share some of the, the specifics here for um, what the requirements are or what you're looking for in a donor? Yeah, This well, is like our match.com moment here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's not that difficult, but it is like you think about it and it's like, I never understood why Dr. Hernandez kept saying, you know, oh, it's going to be, you know, you're, you're big. You're going to miss out on people. And I'm like, I'm a guy, I'm like just over six foot. I'm like, yeah. how difficult is it going to be? But if you figure six, you know, you need to be five ten for a woman, that's like an Amazon woman in most cases. So I, I eliminate like 80% of the population yeah. of women. Uh, okay, and, okay. and I will tell you one thing, Trevor, that I have yep. learned. I have had more women want to be donors for me than I have men. I am not surprised by this. <laughs> so, so um, but basically you need to be between the ages of 18 and 60. Um, I think 18 because you need to be old enough to sign a contract. And yep. 60 because I think our bodies stop regenerating at the same rate when we get older, as opposed to being younger. I, I'm making that up, but I think that's a pretty good. I think assumption. you're spot on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, the other thing is I'm O positive blood type. So any O blood type works, certain strains of A, doesn't matter if it's plus or negative, just certain strains of A. So if you're A or O blood type call, um, you have to have a BMI of less than 30. BMI is body mass index. And if you don't know what yours is, just type in, you know, in Google BMI calculator, put in your height and your weight, and it'll tell you what your BMI is. Um, it. and, and it's only under 30 at the time of transplant. So if you're like a 32, you can easily within a month or two, get down to 30. Yeah. Um, the height you need to be between about five, 10 and six, four, because I am like about six, one. And the reason for that is our livers regenerate to full size within 12 weeks. Some do it within like eight weeks. It's amazing. I mean, incredible what the liver does. But Unbelievable. Yeah. Because it regenerates to its full size, when I get part of your liver in my body, if it's too big, it will, won't fit. If it's too small, it won't be able to handle everything that my body has to put into it. So we need to get something that's fairly close to my size. That's why the 510 to 64. Um, and then you can't have any signs of previous cancer. You can't have diabetes. You can't have heart disease and you can't have kidney disease. I mean, so even with those restrictions, we're talking about millions of people in the U S so tall women, let's go. And, um, 
and, and like an average size. I mean, I think the average, I mean, height of is five, nine or five, 10 for a male. So any bone above that, what was the range for height again? Five, like 10, to five six, 10 to six, four. Yeah. 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 And I, I think mean, if you're, if you're swap. an inch or two, either way, I don't think it's going to be a huge deal. They'll still consider you, but that's kind of the range that they told me that they were the ideal range that they were looking for. <laughs> you mentioned the capacity of the liver. So the liver is a unbelievably amazing organ. I mean, there's, I've learned in my own cancer experience over the past four plus years where I've, I've lost lots of things that apparently um, aren't critical. Like your, your body can pick up functions from all kinds of places, but the liver is specifically cool because it does regenerate, it regrows. So the person who's going to donate part of their liver to Tim, their liver is actually going to regenerate and regrow pretty much to the full volume of what it was before and totally full function, which is just mind blowing. And I've learned from my reading that it happens pretty damn quick. Like it's not like years that it takes for this thing to grow back. Like it's weeks. It's, yeah. It's, it's literally like two to three months. It is back <laughs> to full size. <laughs> oh, awesome. So take us, um, now I guess it's time for you to talk about how you got here. Um, so talk, uh, if you could, a little bit about your diagnosis, how old you were and, and what was happening in your life at that time. Yeah. Well, um, unlike a lot of people, my wife and I were actually enjoying the pandemic. Um, we were, we got along just great. I think it brought us closer together. Uh, we were having fun doing like Airbnbs, you know, where we just bring our own food and stuff and, you know, sit out at the pool on the canal in Fort Lauderdale and never have to meet the host or anything and never went out and just we were our own people, like doing our own little mini vacation. We'd, you know, we'd do carryouts from our favorite local restaurants. We'd hire our, you know, favorite musicians to play on Zoom for us and our friends that we'd all like, you know, get on Zoom together and have drinks and dinner together. It was just, we were having a great time. And then, it was that was in 2020 and November of that year, um, right around Thanksgiving here in America, um, I started feeling a pain in my right flank and told my wife about it. And she goes, why don't you go to urgent care? Because we got one right in our center. It's where I it's it was basically my primary doctor because I only went like once a year and that's who I usually went to. <laughs> um, but I, I said, no, I'll just wait until Monday, you know, because it's a holiday weekend. Friday, it got a little bit worse. Saturday it got a little bit worse. She kept asking me, are you going to go? Or are you going to, I'm going to go on Monday. I'm going to go on Monday. I woke up Sunday and she came downstairs and I said, as soon as they open, I'm going to go. Oh no. And it was that bad where it was just like bothering me consistently instead of just, you know, a little bit here and there. And so I went and they did an evaluation and didn't know exactly what was wrong, but thought it might've been a kidney stone. And, and I'm, and, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but what year did you say this was again? In 2020. This was 2020 and, and right around Thanksgiving. So November, yeah, not quite, um, we're going on closing in on two years and you were what age again? I was 52. 52. Okay. So yeah, continue. And, um, and so they ordered the CT scan on Monday. I, I got the CT scan in the morning. Um, they, made it very clear. Do not call them for the results. Your doctor will get the results. It'll be within a few hours, but it's up to them to call me. And right. so I, I went home and all this is in my neighborhood. So I could walk to everything and I get home and I remember I got the call from the urgent care and I was with my wife and we were kind of joking, thinking it might've been kidney stones and said, well, I guess it's not going to be a prescription if they want me to come into the office. Right. And, um, I went into the office and, 
it was unlike, I knew something was up because it was unlike any other experience I've had at a doctor's office. And you've been to plenty of them too. It's like, yep. you know, the whole registration process, right? Like sign in, take a seat, wait to be called back, you know, da, da, da. This was, oh, you're Tim McDonald. And I said, yes. And they brought me right to the back into a room. And as soon as I got in the room, the doctor came in, closed the door, and he had one piece of paper in his hand and said, you have cancer. Ugh. And that was, I mean, but he knew that I didn't have really good insurance. I didn't have a, a primary doctor. And so all I said was, you know, because I looked at him, I wasn't like, I mean, I was shocked, but I wasn't like in shock. You know, I, I was just like, okay, that's rather startling news. Um, you know, let's, you know, what do I need to do? That's the only thing going through my head was what do I need to do? I just, I've never been through this. So help me understand what's next. What's the next step here? And he said, probably what you need to do because my colon, the mass in my colon was so big, it actually showed up on the CT scan where most of the time it doesn't. Yeah. Um, so it was almost a complete blockage. And he said, you really need to get a colonoscopy as soon as possible. And um, then I got hooked up with an oncologist who was also in St. Pete. Um, and he gave me, and Lori was able to come in. My wife was able to come in with me for that and gave me the best advice right in our first meeting. He said, I encourage you. He was so good. I encourage you to get a second, third and fourth opinion every step along your journey. Wow. And he goes, even talking to me, I want you to go. I encourage you to go get a second opinion. That is gold right there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> who, who, I mean, very few people in their first encounters with an oncologist are ever going to hear that. So that's awesome. Well, it really helped me kind of put me in the right mindset of, you know, because the other part of what he said was, and the reason why I tell you to do this constantly is because if you're not hearing what you believe you should be hearing, keep talking to somebody until you hear it. And if you exhaust all your resources and convince yourself that you were wrong, then you're okay. Love it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, second, second, third, fourth opinions. This is what we preach. I mean, in all of our communities, like it's, it's, and, and in the male community, particularly, that is a tough one to convince people because a lot of guys go in, they get one opinion and they think, well, this one, per this one doctor thinks it. So that's probably what the whole rest of the world is going to think. And we have learned time after time again, the value of second opinions. So but then I went, you know, cause he had told me, he goes, why are you driving 45 minutes? You're going to have to do this every two weeks. Why don't you go somewhere closer to home? There's somebody in our, you know, healthcare system. That's like 10 minutes from your house. If you want a referral, I can refer you. And I said, sure. And I went into her now at her office, Lori could not come in. And I am so glad she could not come in because as soon as I got in that room, I think the first two things that the doctor said was, I have no idea why you were on full Fox because that can cause permanent damage to you. And secondly, you only got three years to live. So I want to give you the highest quality of life that you have during those three years. Yikes. And I had never heard those words. I mean, oh. I did hear the range of like three to five years, you know, for stage four colon <clears throat> cancer and, you know, life expectancy. So I got home and called my original oncologist and told him what was going on. And he's, he said, listen, I don't give dates because I've been wrong so many times. I give six months and somebody lives for six years. I give six years. Somebody lives for six months. Absolutely. And he goes, now I'm going to tell you with your case, three to five years is statistically the average, but take into account that's all age groups, all health conditions. He goes, you're fairly young. 
and overall very healthy. Right. So I would expect you to live on the longer end of that. Do I think it's realistic that you're going to live 10 years? No. And, and then he explained how like full Fox and full fury, you know, if you go to, you know, a hundred oncologists, 50 are going to use one and 50 are going to use the other. There's no right or wrong. They both have about the same effective rates. And so it's just about, you know, what your personal preference is and what you think is working. And yes, Folfox is a limited time because it can cause neuropathy and nerve loss in your toes and your, your, um, fingers, but it's one of those things that, you know, is, you know, just as effective as the other one. And sometimes even a better first line defense for somebody in my condition. So right. yeah. long story, he just said, there's nothing wrong with that. He goes, the time, you know, he put my mind kind of at ease with that, even though hearing a, a time on your life is like never a pleasant thing. And I just told myself, as soon as I heard those words from that oncologist, and I went out and I told Lori, and I said this exact thing to her, and because she started bawling as soon as I told her. And I said, listen, that was her story. It's not mine. Mm. And I said, I am going to beat this thing. I don't care what it's going to take. It Cancer is not going to take me down. And that was, you know, I was only like in, that was before my second treatment of chemo. So I was very in, new to this whole thing, but I had had that attitude since I was told I had cancer is I'm just going to find a way to get this taken care of and it's not going to take me down. You know, so that was her story. It's not mine. What a beautiful, that, that is just a powerful moment. And, and I mean, and the whole date thing and like the, the terminal thing, giving people dates and, and the incurable, all that stuff. I always come back to the words of Dr. Tom Marsilia, the late, great Dr. Tom, who educated so many of us through the colon club, colon town, all these places who said, I am, people say I'm incurable. I say I'm currently incurable. So all of those dates, like they don't factor in all of this, all of the trial. There's literally hundreds of trials going on. There's data emerging all the time. There's new treatments emerging all the time. So, you know, they can give you this, these statistics that are always old, but, and there's always outliers, first of all, but second of all, like they just can't predict what's going to happen over that next three to five years or, you know, or your journey specifically where you responded so beautifully to chemo that now you're this candidate for this liver transplant, which is, you know, very, has a really good shot at getting you to cure. So I think it's irresponsible. I mean, I understand people want to ask the question, but I, I do think there is a little bit of irresponsibility around telling someone, well, you're only going to live three years. So I'm worried. I'm going to focus on your quality of life for those three. It'd be more appropriate to say like, here's the, like your original oncologist said, like, here's the statistics. Here's what we know about the, the average person based on your data, but it doesn't tell your story. You're telling your story. So Man, what a great, I, I didn't expect to talk about this uh, particularly today, but that's a great um, road to go down. For anyone listening, what a great lesson. Well, thank you. And, you know, but that really was the kind of the, the catalyst for me pushing to get into Moffitt, which is a, a major cancer center here in, in Tampa. And yes. one of, it's the only NCI accredited um, cancer center in the state of Florida. So it's, it's like, it, they're very well known. But the one thing that my original oncologist told me when I told him I was trying to get in there, he said, that is great for you because they have access to clinical trials that I wouldn't. Absolutely. 
Shout out to Moffat. What a great place. What a great yeah. center. We have a lot of guys in Man Up to Cancer community, in the Man Up to Cancer community, and in the Howling Place group, who are in Moffat. Um, you know, I think of Lee Silverstein. I also think of Buddy Cutler um, off the top of my head, and there's a, there's a lot more. So I'm leaving a lot of people out. But yeah, and a few um, that have won their battles too. So. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, we are getting. Nobody escapes the gauntlet of random questions. Definitely not Tim McDonald. He, we're going to get him there, but I want to do just one question. We're, and we're running a little short on time, but just one more question before we get to the gauntlet. Obviously, this quest for a liver donor is the top priority right now. Like, um, and, and real quick, what's the? Do, do you have like a time frame, like a time window? Like, are they telling you like, hey, we need to get this done between X and, and Z, or you know, we're going to miss our window? Like, what's what are they telling you? Yeah, well, the the whole thing is is they haven't given me an absolute window, but when I had my meeting in March which was right before my colon resection. That's when they told me to have my donor meeting and start the process of, of trying to find a donor. Okay. At that meeting, they told me that given what was happening, they would expect that to probably plan for the end of August, beginning of September. So if we back up, we're like in mid-July right now. Um, if it's a month process, that brings us to like, you know, mid-August then I need to be off of chemo. That brings us to mid September. So we're right in line with what they were kind of expecting right now. If I find a donor today. Okay. Right. So let's go, let's make this happen <laughs> for sure. Like but we don't, main, we don't have, yeah. But the main thing is, and why it's like, I can't give you an answer of what the window is, is because at any moment, even if I find a donor today, if they have my next CT scan and it shows the cancer moved outside of my liver, I'm not a candidate until I take care of that. And, and right now you are on, you're on chemo to just ho hold the line. I, yeah, I'm on, I, I was, when I got into Moffitt, I went on full Fox Fury, which is a combination of the full Fox and the full Fury. Um, it was very aggressive, did the trick, but it also gave me major side effects. I was on right. that for six months, got the neuropathy in my toes. They stopped it and put me on full Fury now. So I've been on full Fury for the last year. Okay. And that's basically been kind of holding the line, minor reduction, but definitely doing the job. Awesome. So the question now, um, before we get to the hot seat is, you know, this, the quest for the liver donor is priority, but anyone who knows you knows that cancer is just a part of your life. You are so active in so many ways with your wife um, and, and just in life in general. Tell us a little bit about your life on the whole and the things that you love to do, um, you know, even during this, you know, fight for your life. Yeah, no, I mean, I have loved to travel um, early on. It was, my wife was a little hesitant about it because she was worried about, you know, my side effects and how it would be. And if I'd be up in the room the whole time or have to go to the hospital, you know, in a foreign country or something. And so, um, but we love to travel and I love doing that. And the reason why I love doing that is, you know, one, I think it just gives you kind of a break from, you know, when you, when you have cancer and especially if you're going through chemotherapy, it's every two weeks you're getting chemotherapy, you know, you're getting your pump disconnected every month. You're going in for a clinic visit every two months. You're getting a scan. It's, it's just like this, this routine that you just get in and kind of getting away just kind of makes you forget about everything that you're going through with the cancer aspect of your life. And so I love that aspect, but more importantly, what I think it does, especially when we travel to different parts of the country or outside of the country is it really helps us get to understand um, 
how people are in different parts of the world. And that our way of thinking is based upon what we know where we live. And when we travel somewhere else, we get a greater understanding of how they live and how they think. And it, it kind of broadens our perspective on, you know, how much we have in common instead of how much we have apart. Oh, well said. Absolutely. I love that. Um, it is time though. It's time for the gauntlet of random questions. <laughs> Before I do this though, I got to say thank you. So Tim, you are a force of nature. So in Man Up to Cancer's Howling Place group, Tim is amazingly just generous with his time and spirit, helping others, picking people up when they need it. He's also brave enough to ask for help when he needs it, which is the role modeling that we are looking for in the Howling Place. And it's so that that sort of reciprocity and the both ways, that's just fantastic. Thank you for that. <clears throat> Let's remind folks again of the link. Very simple, people. Timsliver.com. Go there, share it. Maybe it's going to be you that is the hero that Tim needs. Okay, it's the time for Gauntlet of Random Questions. I have four diabolical questions for Tim McDonald. As a child, little Tim, what did, what did you want to be when you grew up? I was just talking about this this morning. Oh, okay. It's, it's very specific. A beach bum in Baja, California. <laughs> that is very specific. Like how early age are we talking about that you figured that out? Is this like... You know, I was probably like around 12 or so um, because I spent my summers as a kid on Long Beach Island in New Jersey at my grandparents' house. And so I always loved that kind of surfing beach vibe. And I just saw myself like you know, where was the best surf spots in the world? And Baja, California was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever get out there? I still, to this day, have never been to Baja, California. All right. So after you get your deliver, um, you're going to Baja. I need to, we need to have photos of you just beach bumming it out there. <laughs> in my little uh, tiki hut bar. <laughs> oh, definitely, man. Definitely. I love it. I love how specific that is. All right. This is, a, I think this could be a challenge for you. Favorite product um, made or grown or produced in Florida. So because you're a Florida guy now, what's, what's like the best thing to come out of Florida these days? I'm going to, I don't eat meat. I'm a pescatarian. So I love okay. seafood. Okay. So I would say it's a tie between stone crab and hogfish. Okay. Stone crab I've heard of hogfish is new to me. What's um, the hog? You've heard of grouper, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So hogfish is just a, a very similar to grouper. It's like the ugly cousin of grouper. Um, well, I don't think either of them look very appealing, but <laughs> <laughs> they taste so, good. <laughs> okay. So these are two, uh, these fish can be prepared in, in lots of different ways and they're just delicious. Yes. Oh yeah. Okay. I mean, the, the stone crabs are only in the, in season and the last couple of years haven't been that great for them, but I would say, they charge more for the bigger ones. The smaller ones are a little bit sweeter. I love them cold and with the the mustard uh, sauce to dip in. Okay. So being a pescatarian, then you're not in on the Cuban sandwich uh, debate not. going no. on around Florida. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So moving on, what is your most used emoji? I would probably say it's a tie between the, per the blue heart and the strong arm. <laughs> oh, okay all right so blue heart uh which is blue is for, that, that's good for, because of blue for colon cancer colorectal right? cancer yeah yep. for colorectal cancer and, and the strong CRC arm. uses a strong arm selfie so we're, we're i'm always using that <laughs> i love it i love the strong arm selfie 
<laughs> um, and I guess lastly, if you could bring back any fashion trend, what would you bring back? What did you enjoy maybe in your younger days? Wild bell-bottom jeans. <laughs> I, see, I see a couple of them. I see a couple of them coming back. They need a little more momentum. But were you a, you were a bell-bottom guy? Yeah, was, I can I can imagine younger Tim in bell-bottoms. I, I used to wear, I told you my, my vision of being a beach bum. Well, <laughs> I before you could buy like Hawaiian shirts at like Kmart and Target, I would actually have to find a little store in it was in because I grew up in the Chicago area. It was in Des Plaines, Illinois, and yep. it was a Hawaiian store. So everything Hawaiian, and it actually came from Hawaii. And so I would save up my money from my, you know, doing my chores or my cutting lawns or whatever, and go in and buy like a seventy dollar Hawaiian authentic Hawaiian shirt. Oh and, my god! And my dad had one from when they visited Hawaii when I was really young. That was from Sears in Hawaii, and it was so ugly. It was like this puke green color, but I loved wearing that when I got older. So like, you know, those types of clothes were my jam, but I remember finding in my dad's closet, a pair of, it was red, white, and blue, like striped with stars on them, um, bell bottom jeans from like the sixties or something. Dude, And I was like, they fit me. <laughs> I loved it. I was like, I was in heaven wearing that, but I, I was into some really funky clothes like in high school. So <laughs> There you have it, folks. Tim McDonald, if you want to hang out in some funky clothes, maybe you guys could even go to Baja together if you're going to be the donor, timsliver.com. Is there anything, Tim, that you had planned to talk about today that we didn't get into? Uh, no, I think this is, it, it's just been so fun, Trevor. I just, I love talking about this. And for those people that want to know, you know, why it's so important, why do I want to keep on living? Because I know we all are going to you know, die at some point in our life. Apparently we don't get out of here alive. <laughs> um, <laughs> but this is why I just love moments like this. I love being able to talk with people, share stories, listen to stories. And I can guarantee you if somebody is interested that wants to be a donor and wants to go to Baja, we will make that happen after my transplant. I am so excited to see what's going to happen next because I have a good feeling that this is your match is going to emerge whether, you know, and there's so many people working on it. I know you're doing a lot of shows. You're getting out there on social media. You're getting out there on traditional media. Um, so, you know, just much love to you, brother. We appreciate you. We love you. And um, I hope that we have our next show on this to, you know, maybe either when you found your donor or, or even after, you know, you've received that liver and are on your way to, to good health and a long, long life. So thank you, Tim. And getting a word out about the, uh, the community. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then that next phase of getting the word, yeah, of, of building something uh, that doesn't exist right now. No, so. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So thank you so much, Trevor. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the man up to cancer podcast. If you want to get behind our mission, you can connect with us, subscribe to our email list, and check out our other content at manuptocancer.com. And if you know a man struggling with the isolation that cancer can bring, let him know about us. The Wolfpack doors are always open.